Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I've had the pleasure over the last week, uh, somebody reached out to me and told me I should get in touch with this man. Uh, he is a family friend of the late, great Clem Levine, who was a pitcher on those Boys of Summer teams, Rick Elliott. Rick, thank you very, very much for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. So as I mentioned, you're a family friend of Clem Levine. Uh, please tell the audience uh, your connection to Clem. Okay, I will. It, it's ironic, Sam, because although I was born a little, and we lived for a very short time in Brooklyn, my family ended up moving to um, the town of Woonsocket, Rhode Island, because of uh, my father's business and his father's business. Uh, it was a manufacturing company. We manufactured men's outerwear and sportswear. It's called Jacob Finkelstein and Sons. So we, uh, my family, although actually technically rooted in Brooklyn, um, my connection to Brooklyn started in Woonsocket because in Woonsocket, my father befriended a young high school uh, ball player named Clem Labine, who was the superstar of the Woonsocket uh, uh, high school team. And uh, he, in fact, came to work at my dad's plant very early at 15, 16 years old, looking for summer work. It ended up being Clem Labine. And um, my father was a bit older than Clem. My father was probably 18 or 19 years older. Um, but they became very good friends. So Clem came on board as a part-time high school kid. And uh, that was in 43, I think, or 44 when he graduated. And he stayed with our company until we had to close the doors in 1985. So it was, uh, it was um, a long, long friendship. It started between my father and Clem. But then as I was 18 years younger than Clem, but as I grew up, Clem became a huge part of my life too. So it was ironically, it's Clem's hometown that put uh, the Dodger love in my heart. It uh, wasn't being of Brooklyn uh, awareness. It was meeting him in Woonsocket. Well, to digress a bit, you mentioned that your, your family did have roots in Brooklyn, uh, your, your dad and your, your grandfather. Um, so what, what is the Finkelstein's roots in Brooklyn? When did they, the family first move there, and uh, what are some of the – I'm guessing, and I, I'm obviously uh, – I'm you know, speculating here, but I'm guessing they were – originally part of a big immigration movement that did go to Brooklyn in the early part of the 20th century. That's exactly right. My, my grandfather, Jacob Finkelstein, came over as a very young boy, 16, 17 years old, through Ellis Island. Ended up, we're not sure exactly where, but ended up on what my, my mother's still alive, Sam, so she's 98. Her memory, I tried to find out the exact address and the street, and all she kept saying is, I've told you once, 
I told you 20 times, it's prospect. We lived on prospect in Brooklyn. And then she gets a little irritated. So I can't tell you and remember whether it was Prospect Street, Boulevard Circle, or Avenue, but we ended up, um, Jacob got to New York City, migrated over to Brooklyn, and Lillian, my mom, all she can recall is the name Prospect. Um, I then was born out on, uh, for some reason, transported out to another hospital to be born. But by the time I was four years old, um, like many of the uh, uh, many of the immigrants who were coming over, Jacob, my grandfather, English became his second language. He was he was from Alsace-Lorraine, so Jacob spoke French. Mm. He tried to locate. Um, a place where his where his French would be better received, and Woonsocket, Rhode Island, has or had then the second largest French French speaking population in the country after New Orleans. So he ended up in Woonsocket. He opened a tiny little shop there, uh, manufacturing rubberized raincoats. And there were six or seven people, and by 1957, he and his four sons um, had built it into the seventh largest outerwear manufacturer in America. Men's sports, where we had five, 600 employees. We won the Army-Navy Excellence Awards four years of World War II. And so he, he got to Woonsocket. He established this wonderful relationship with his employee base. And they built it into quite a company. And, and of course, within that company is this young kid that, who comes out of uh, Woonsocket High School, Clem Levine. So in a way, it was, it's the most unlikely of connections. Of and course. Yet it, and it became an enormous part of our lives. And other than the, the, uh, the French demographic, can you describe a little bit more about Woonsocket back, back at that time, what it was yeah, like when you first moved there? When, when back in the 40s, um, it was predominantly a French Catholic white population. There was a smaller community of Irish Catholic white population, but there were, uh, my family uh, uh, is Jewish, and there must have been a total of seven or eight Jewish families, so uh, it, was, it, it was a Catholic town, and it was a white town. And um, in fact, Clem is uh, by birth, um, French Canadian Catholic, so uh, he was right part of that community. So that was the early demographics of it. Um, and just to digress for a second, it was my dad's company and my fa- and my grandfather's company, who, um, retaining their progressive background, decided it was time to break the color barrier in uh, in Woonsocket. There were no African American families. And they recruited. And in 1941, they found a wonderful fellow who was a truck driver in New Jersey um, looking for different employment. Uh, his name was Isaiah Lindsay. And uh, they convinced Isaiah, it wasn't easy, but they convinced Isaiah Lindsay to move to Woonsocket, Rhode Island. So when he came up in 1941 and joined us at Finkelstein's, he was the first African-American family uh, in, in the city of Woonsocket ever. And he was the first employee. So I always think of the stories of Clem meeting Jackie Robinson and Junior, and Junior Gilliam and Campy and the wonderful friendships. Uh, when Clem was 15 years old, he had befriended uh, um, Isaiah Lindsay. And, uh, and for his entire life, they remained close. Uh, Isaiah lived to be 99 years old. 
And even to the end of his life, he kept pictures of Clem on his wall and, and Jackie Robinson on his wall. So well, Clem's, well, ex- Clem's exposure. Re- regarding Isaiah, I know that you have a great story uh, regarding him and Jackie Robinson, but we'll get to that later and on in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but let's start with, uh, in terms of uh, Clem, let's talk about some of your memories uh, of, of baseball regarding Clem Levine being a family friend. I try to pinpoint the, the, the minute that I became aware of it. And the first memory I think I have, uh, Sam, is that after 1951, when Clem had pitched uh, his rookie year, he had pitched that second game of the playoffs against the, uh, uh, the Giants and uh, had shut the Giants out in that second game. When he came home, there were parties thrown for him in Woonsocket. He was, uh, he was nicknamed uh, Winsocket's own big leaguer. And I remember being in my pajamas and my dad getting me up and taking my sister and me over to Clem's home over on Follett Street, never forget, and, and um, sitting on Clem's lap in his den with this pine-paneled wall behind us. I remember that night. And then there, luckily my dad took pictures. So... Uh, I, I, that's my first visual proof of it, too, that it started yeah. that early. Uh, I was probably four, maybe just about to turn five years old. And I have that wonderful picture of Susan, my sister, myself, sitting on a very young Clem Levine on his lap. That's my very first memory of, of, of knowing there was something special there. And you were mentioning to me that uh, your dad would sometimes take you and Clem's son, J.R., out of school, sneak you guys out of school, and drive down to Brooklyn. Is there one particular story about a day that you did that? Yeah, there is. He would, he would um, uh, much to the dismay of other members of the family, he would, yeah. get, he would, get, um, he would get J.R., Clem Jr., uh, um, his son, Clem Levine Jr., J.R. was the only name we called him. But J.R. and I were snuck out of our schools. My dad had an old Ozenfield, and he would scoot us down early in the morning if there were Brooklyn games. In September and October, as the Dodgers were starting to make the postseason. So that was always a wonderful adventure. Uh, an adventure. And I remember in 56, um, one game he took us down. It was probably June or July of 56, and dad, my dad took a lot of pictures. That day, we had Clem's seats. It was J.R., myself. Uh, my dad was there. I don't see him in the pictures, but my sister was present. And before the game, Clem walked across from the Dodger dugout, singled us out. We came down the five or six rows. He helped us over the wall, and out on Ebbets Field we walked. And he found a glove for me and J.R. somehow, somehow we tossed the ball around at the, off the uh, third baseline. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, we have, and I have pictures of that. After the game, Clem actually blew the save, but Snyder hit a home run in the eighth, in the bottom of the eighth. So Clem finished it off in the ninth and ended up with the win. So Clem wins the game. Talk about a fantasy day for a little boy. Clem wins the game. Again, he comes over and gets JR and me and takes us into the dressing room to meet the Dodgers and uh, never forget it and walked around and there were all these wonderful bigger than life heroes and I had proof that they were real it was the first time in my life it wasn't Vince Scully describing them or I wasn't looking at them from far away on third base I was right there 
Some of them dressed, some of them undressed, some of them half-dressed, and all of them so polite to me. Um, um, Campanella was there and Jackie Robinson, every single one. Clem walked us around. He held our hands. We met them all. They signed a baseball for us. And then, um, without saying anything to us, Clem took JR's in my hand and walked us out of that door across a cement walkway, knocked on the other door, and Gene Conley, who was the pitcher, who was a pitcher then for the Milwaukee Braves, opened the door. Clement, he seemed to be very friendly, which shocked me, uh, wow. because Conley had lost the game. But they were very friendly. Conley invited us in, and there were all the Milwaukee Braves. And there was another baseball. And Clem asked all the Braves to sign that baseball. And Adcock and Del Crandall and Hank Aaron, and I have the, both those, those balls. And you asked me, what's my memory? My memory, the strongest memory I have, is Clem's spikes clicking on that uh, cement-poured walkway, if you can picture it, the sound of steel and cement. But I think when I think back to the, mag- the most magical day, that one keeps cropping up at a lot of different levels. I'd never seen anybody as tall as Gene Conley. I'd never seen my heroes you know, half-dressed. And it was proof that they were alive. It was no longer, there was no longer any, any wonder. It had all been real, you know. That it's, it's a beautiful story, and, and just I can picture the uh, or, or hear the, the metal spikes on the cement floor, and, and being uh, you know a screenwriter and filmmaker, that is that is something that, that you want in your stories is, is that kind of atmospheric uh, presence. And I'll, never, yeah, I'll never forget it. It's so, indelibly imprinted there. <laughs> so going back a year before that with 1955 and the world champion Brooklyn Dodgers the only championship they ever won in Brooklyn, and they were there uh, from 1882 onwards. Uh, before we get to the, uh, the aftermath uh, and, and the celebration, uh, you know, post-beating uh, the Yankees, what do you remember about that series uh, and, and following it from up in Rhode Island? Well, we remember that it, 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 was, it, it, it couldn't, we, we, we never believed it could happen, but it happened. Um, the, the, so there, it was it was a shock at first, but it, but you have to remember, um, Sam, that during the time when the Dodgers were finishing that pennant drive, and before the series began, uh, the town of Woonsocket and most of the Blackstone Valley, where the Blackstone River runs through, we had been flooded by back-to-back hurricanes, um, oh. ten days apart. Diane and Carol and Diane. So um, the series was played. I was a little boy. And I celebrated the series. My parents kept me a bit unaware of the damage done to the town as parents shield the kids a bit. But our business went underwater. Hundreds and hundreds of businesses were wiped out. And, um, and the town flooded 30 to 40 feet above, um, above um, the regular level of the river because there was no Army Corps of Engineers. And there, were no, there was no flood insurance and there were no flood gates. So the entire town went under. So it was a bit of a, of, of a contradiction in time. Um, Clem uh, went off to his season. He was instrumental, of course, in the, in the 55. He had a wonderful um, um, performance in the 55 series. And he came home to a hometown underwater and devastated. So it, it, it was mixed emotions. He came home, though, with his ring, and I'll never forget him showing us that ring. But he also came home, Sam and had already planned to 
try to help out the community. He, he, he recruited um, a barnstorming, a group of barnstormers. They were called the Spec Shea Barnstormers. Spec Shea, I don't remember him, but was apparently quite a good ball player. Jimmy Pearsall was on that barnstorming team, Walt Dropo, and others. So Clem recruited them, got them all to come home, and, uh, and visit us in Woonsocket. And for eight days, they did tours where Clem would put together a team of Woonsocket or area ball players. Quite good, by the way. There were a lot of good athletes in our town. Um, Chet Nichols is from our town, and, and uh, there were a lot of good ball players who came out of this area. So Clem fielded his team, and they went on tour from the local high school field, Barry Field, to where the Pawtucket Red Sox play now. Um, uh, up in, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and they made a tour of the state, and they raised money, and they donated. None of the players would take money for this tour, and Spec Shea's team and all the guys who contributed the money was donated to the local organizations to help the town rebuild. So it, it was a remarkable thing, uh, and I think back on it now as an adult for this pro ball player um, to go out and do what they did, what Clem did, and to come home with this heavy weight on his shoulders. And yeah. um, so uh, I still think about that. What, what must have crossed his mind? What two moods must have, have kept running through uh, Clem's mind with the victory and the horrible, the horrible situation he came home to? Yes, that's, that's certainly poignant. And he also recruited Jackie Robinson to come up there, he did. am I right? He did. Jackie Robinson um, could not stay for the ball games, or wouldn't stay for the ball games. No one, but we we don't know exactly the number of hours, or whether it was a day and a half, whether he stayed. I tried to reach out to Rachel Robinson and her organization to see if she had any recollection of that uh, period, if, if if she knew how long Jackie spent with us. And and the response I got was that she didn't that she threw another person that she didn't have those recollections. But Jackie Robinson came and came home with Clem, made appearances. There was a little parade with Jackie and it all part of the fundraising. And also he was kind enough and generous enough with his time that he toured the factory um, where Clem worked. It was once the water had receded enough and we got the employees back in there. He came in, he spent the whole day, there, there must have been 500 people back to work by then. He took time to walk through the entire facility and talk to anybody who wanted to talk to him. He was so gracious about that. And, um, and uh, so we did have Jackie Robinson visit us that very famous day, a day and a half. It, it was, um, they were special times, magic times. And I will, I will about, you were talking about uh, Isaiah Lindsay earlier. There, there was uh, Jackie and him bonded. Yeah, they did. I, I will tell you that very quickly, Sam, is that um, when I tell you that there was, it was a white town, I mean it was a white town. It wasn't a predominantly white town. So Isaiah Lindsay comes up with his little family. Um, uh, we, we, we encourage him to come and to stay and to root here to help us change the ten, tenor of the town. So he's got a little apartment down on River Street near the river, near the Blackstone River, and um, a very modest place. And he was a very modest man. So Jackie Robinson goes through the factory, goes through our manufacturing facility. By that time, I believe there were three or four other African-American employees. Um, but in his tour, he stopped and talked to Isaiah Lindsay. Isaiah was, was a wonderful fellow and easy to talk to and a great smile. 
and uh, a wonderful fellow. And Jackie Robinson had spent a bit of time with him. Clem remembers that. My dad remembered that. And um, so the day ends, Jackie had done what he what Clem must have, must have asked him to do. Uh, come help us raise a little money. Uh, come meet the people I work with. Uh, they were big, the employees were a big part of Clem's life. And Jackie Robinson did all those things. So the day ends, and of course, um, my dad and, and his brothers, my dad and Robert and Clem, what they want to do is take Jackie Robinson, of course, out to a dinner and thank him and show their appreciation. He says, okay, but just wait a second. He disappears. Um, we all, I'm told they all thought he was going to the men's room for a moment. And then what he had done is gone back upstairs to the pressing department where Isaiah was still working, came back down to see Clem and my dad and said, fellas, you, you go to dinner. Um, I'm going to do something else. Mr. Lindsay has invited me home to have dinner with his family. So Jackie Robinson turned down the dinner invitation and he went down to River Street to this tiny little apartment where Isaiah and Bessie lived. And I think they had two, maybe three children by then. And he, he spent the evening with them. He had dinner with them. And um, till the day he died, Isaiah Lindsay loved to tell that story to anybody who would listen. In fact, if you went to see Isaiah two days in a row, he would tell you the same story two days in a row because he, he, um, it, it was a magic day for him. And, and, and again, as you get older and you think back, it was a wonderful insight about uh, Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. He saw something that he had to do. And I, I would just add one quick thing. They're sitting at the table, and towards the end of his life, when I used to go and see Isaiah, who remained my friend until um, he passed away just last December, I at least was smart enough to tape record him because he had a wonderful voice. It was a melodic voice. It was a South Carolina voice. It was an African-American voice. It was wonderful. So I would, I would tape record him. I would ask him a question, and he would speak to me. And I have some wonderful stories from, from Isaiah. But one of the stories he loved the most was that story of Jackie Robinson coming home. And he ended it by saying, so there we were. We were at my table, and... Um, we had our cup of tea, and finally Jackie Robinson looks like he's holding back a question or something. I asked him, what is it, Mr. Robinson? And he said, I- I'm just curious. He said, I-, I went to the factory, and I met you, and I saw a few other black faces. Um, but tell me, he said, Isaiah, where does the black community live in Woonsocket? And I say it in this little tape recording I-, I have. He says, the black community, Jackie? You're looking at the black community. And then he said, and we laughed, and we laughed, and the two of us laughed, and it was a most wonderful day. And um, I have that on tape of Isaiah telling that story. That's great. So um, I wanted to share that with you, too. And and I appreciate you sharing it, not only with me, but but with uh, everybody out there. And uh, I want to segue over to a story that I believe uh, really sums up the kind of person Clem was and the kind of person Clem was to you. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's regarding uh, you going away to summer camp up in Maine. Yes. I, in their infinite wisdom, my parents decided that although I needed to be home because I was very close to my dad, I needed to be home because I loved Brooklyn baseball and I loved my Clem Levine. 
and I love my dog, Shan. I, I was one of those kids. I didn't need summer camp, Sam. I really didn't. I needed to be home in the 50s. But somebody somewhere, they read something in somebody's book who said, nah, it's good to send these kids away. It makes them stronger. So they shipped me off to a place in Casco, Maine, um, a Camp Mendota, I think it was called. And I was homesick. It took me about four hours, and I realized I never should have let them talk me into this. This was a mistake. So there was no access to a telephone. The owner, Joe Shiny, wouldn't let me near the phone. They, they all knew what was best for me. And so after I cried for about five days and didn't participate in, in anything, I started to write my little letters. And I was very young. I was about oh, maybe eight, maybe nine years old, eight or nine years old. And... Um, I start to write my letters to my father. Daddy, please come get me. This is awful. I don't want to stay here. I miss you. I miss everything. No response. I write to my mother. I write to all the people I can think of. And finally, Sam, it dawns on me. I even wrote to the woman who cared for us, Anita Sen, who, who was very close to me. And Anita Sen wrote back, but, but in her own little simple words, told me she, she agreed with me but couldn't help me. Finally, I get the insight. Write to Clem. He'll help you. So I write a, a, a letter to Clem Levine. Clem Levine, Brooklyn Dodgers, Brooklyn, New York. Personal. Probably spelt it wrong, but personal. And I get a postcard back on one of those McCarthy postcards. And um, he writes me a note on the, on the McCarthy postcard that says, Dear Ricky, I understand, but don't worry about it. Because when we both get home, you can come on and live at my house. Yeah. So, and I still haven't, as we're talking on, on the phone here, Sam, I'm looking up at that postcard, which I have on the wall. Don't worry, Ricky, you can come on and live at my house. And I, I, to this day, I think that's what got me through the summer, because they wouldn't take me home, and I survived, obviously, I'm talking with you. But he was, he, he was a major league ball player in the prime of his career, with, with a million things on his mind, his own family, and he was willing to share that with me. And um, he was willing to share that with me. And that, 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 that is who Clem was. He, he shared his major league career with a little boy who was not his own, and he shared it totally unselfishly. And it, and it was a remarkable gift he gave me. You really uh, hit the nail on the head with that. And, uh, again, I, I'm so thrilled that I could get in touch with you and, and share all these. And, and for all the listeners out there, you can check up on Facebook. I'm going to be putting some of the photos uh, over the next few days that, that Rick has sent me. And there's some spectacular-looking photos. And, uh, Rick, I, I very much appreciate you coming on. And uh, uh, we'll certainly do this again sometime. We'll do it any time you'd like. I mean, it's really a pleasure. And you have to know, Sam, that when you're asking me these questions, you're bringing back some of the most pleasant memories of my life. So, so it's a gift, <laughs> baby. Oh, it's so, a gift that keeps on giving to me and gift, you. Yeah, it just keeps on giving. And, um, and uh, we'll talk. You know, Sam, let me end with this. Sure. Um, Clem wore his 1955 ring. It, it was a treasure to him. He... His son, J.R., got the 59 ring when they beat the White Sox. And he gave my dad his 1960 World Series ring because at the end of his career, he had ended up on Pittsburgh. He got dealt to Pittsburgh. He was in the bullpen with Elroy Fixon. They, they, they won that 60 World Series. He gifted um, my dad that ring. That's the kind of friendship he was. And since there were no more rings left, 
he gave to me his lifetime major league baseball pass. So I'm, and as I'm talking to you on the phone, I'm holding this brass major leagues professional baseball present this lifetime pass to Clem Levine, appreciation along and meritorious, and uh, was meritorious service, and it's signed by the 1959 presidents of both leagues. So he ran out of rings, but he, but I'll always have his lifetime baseball pass, and uh, so I wanted to. I tell you, it was a wonderful friendship they had, and um, he started off as a hero to me. He's, he, he grew into something bigger than life. He shared it all, and then as I grew and entered adulthood and entered business and was there with him as a partner in business, it was a different evolving relationship where he became a confidant, a partner in business. He became an advisor to me and a dear friend, and then my dad passed away, and Clem and I continued it as, as two guys getting a bit older. So it, was, it wasn't just the childhood hero. Our relationship evolved the entire time, his entire life, till he passed away. You know, when my dad died, he gave the eulogy at my father's funeral. And um, the, the thing he ended with, Sam, is he said um, whatever he said, that what my dad loved and didn't love. And he said, I said hello, I met him. He was Elliot. And I was never the same. So when Clem passed away and I wrote a little tribute to him in, uh, in the Woonsocket call, I ended, it I ended it analogously. I said, he was Clem Levine, and I met him, and we grew older together, and he was Clem, and we never said goodbye, and I will never forget him. So even his comments at my father's funeral uh, stay with me. So I, I so much appreciate, Sam, you reaching out and having this opportunity. Absolutely, Rick. And, and like I said, uh, it's just it's a wonder for me to, to uh, get these stories in, and, and it just brings a smile to my face every single time I, I hear all of these stories, and you were no exception to, Thank you. to any, anybody else that's been on this show. It's, it's just uh, fantastic. Thank you, Sam. S such a pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. And, uh, and, if, and, if, and if you want me to send you pictures or scans of anything, I have thousands of things, you let me know and I'll send them to you. Sam, if you want the originals, I'll give you the originals. doesn't matter uh, well, as, long as, they, as long as they stay in the blue bloodline of the Dodgers. I, I very much appreciate that, and I, I have continued the legacy of, by uh, being a Mets fan uh, uh, in terms of National League Baseball in New York, and, and that's, uh, that's what I'm currently experiencing. And I don't care what anybody says, I... Uh, I, if, winning or losing, it, it's glorious to, it have, to have the game of baseball uh, in my life. Good, and it is. And Clem ended up loving the Mets where he ended up with uh, Roger Craig towards the end. So you're, we even forgive you for being a Mets fan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and on that note, that is our episode, everybody. Rick, again, thank you very, very much. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Sam. We'll Take care, soon. everybody. Catch us, uh, catch us next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.